back to another freewheeling podcast. I am your stepping host this week again. I'm Lauren Rowney, and today I am joined by Matilda Price, or Tilda, as she's known on t- Twitter. Good morning, Tilda. Hello. Yes. Can't decide on a first name, apparently, but yeah. I personally vote for Tilda. I don't know. <laughs> Matilda's like pretty formal. It does, but it suits her, her British accent. And of course, we are joined by Amy Lauren Jones. Good morning. What? Good morning. What British accent? It wouldn't suit mine, I reckon. You sound pretty posh, although I wouldn't really know. Or she? Oh, they're making weird faces. Tilda, am I posh? Yeah, your posh um, northern accent. It's lovely. My really is posh. Oh, I love that. But no one's saying Stoke on Trent is the poshest area of the UK, are they? No. Well, maybe from an Australian perspective, you know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so this past weekend was Ride London, the first ever a stage race of this race. Um, it's been going since 2013 when it started off as a bit of a glorified um, criterium in front of Buckingham Palace. It was a pretty special event. It was won by Laura Kenny back then. And um, this is the first year we were given three stages. Last week, if you listen to the podcast, um, we were saying how we were really excited about the fact that it was more than just um, a race in, I said, downtown London, which made no sense, in London. Um, and then this year we were, were given three stages, uh, but unfortunately, this will be a topic of discussion today, we didn't get to watch the first two stages, the, the final stage, which was an 85-kilometre circuit race in London, was um, live on GCN, but uh, I guess maybe this is something we could start off with today if, if you ladies want to, um, was the fact that there was a bit of... I don't know if outrage, I guess it was a bit of outrage from the teams and the riders and from a spectator's point of view who like to tune into women's cycling that the race didn't actually meet the requirement of a minimum of 45 minutes coverage, which again is something that we seem to harp on about a lot on this podcast for good reason. And yeah, I think that's actually a really good starting point today. Actually, Tilda was on the ground for all three stages, so she can give us a bit of an idea of what was happening there because uh, we, we didn't get a visual on it. So do you want to start with maybe stage one, Tilda? It was in Essex, was it? Yeah. So stage one was Malden to Malden, starting and finishing in the same place, which was quite good. Um, yeah, it was quite a good atmosphere on the ground, I would say, despite the disgruntled tweets and stuff that we saw. Um, so yeah, stage one started in Malden and they headed out towards a reservoir near Colchester. Um, so there's big exposed roads and there was no breakaway, which uh, was a little bit surprising at the time. But then I think actually when you looked at the stage profile and the fact that there were no sprints or Queen of the Mountains available until the finishing circuit, plus the fact that there was no TV coverage to try and get on, there was really no reason to be in a breakaway. Um, and I spoke to Anna Henderson at the finish of that stage and she just said, yeah, just no one was really bothered. And considering there were a lot of small t- teams there, like Abel O'Shea and IBCT and Nicole Wahoo even, the fact that no one was interested in getting in a move like that kind of shows how how these things are motivated by 
chasing jerseys and getting on the TV. And when you take all of that away, it's like, why would you bother? I think there were a couple of attempts, but quite half-heartedly. And the the sprinters teams were quite happy to just keep it all together. Um, and then, so yeah, when we got into this final finishing circuit in Malden, Anna Henderson attacked. It was quite an innocuous attack, actually. She was fourth wheel coming through the sprint. And then she just sort of carried on whilst Vibus and Balsamo sat up after the sprint. Anna just forged ahead. She said she at first didn't really commit to it because she didn't want to be out on her own. But then they'd slowed down so much in the bunch that suddenly she had a gap of over a minute. And she said, oh, I kind of had to commit at that point. Um, so she collected the the Queen of the Mountains points, which would prove useful um, the next couple of days. At one point, it looked like she might stay away. She had 30 seconds into the last three kilometres, but um, they were really, really chasing hard behind. And it was a bit of a rise to the line. And as soon as she slowed down a little bit on that, she was she was just caught up by the chasing peloton. Lorena Vibus, I don't think that was her best day in terms of the the lead out, but she just found the right wheels and went and won by a pretty convincing margin over um, Balsamo and Norsgaard. And that was kind of the, the theme of the weekend, really, a, a dominant Lorena Vibus. Yeah, it was. And going back to what you were saying before about the, the tactics of the, the start of the day, um, I think I saw a tweet from Ezra Trump saying that riders would have been, or the teams would have been better off actually going to Turrigan, which was a 2.1 race, but you could watch pretty much every stage, at least I'm going to say 60 kilometres of it, which we can actually talk about a bit later because uh, Bike Exchange absolutely dominated at that race. Did she say that? Did she say they would have been better off? Going, is that what she said? In some words, that's my sort of interpretation. Basically, I can find the tweet. Maybe I should go back and find the tweet. But that it would have been more advantageous for the writers to go there. And I think Brody Chapman was pretty vocal about it too, that um, it was she thought it was disrespectful. That caused quite a stir on Twitter. Thought what was disrespectful? She thought that the lack of coverage was. Yeah, she yes. said that to me. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, she did. Legend, love Brody. Yeah, um, yeah. What? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You said we we didn't really see any of the like the British, the smaller British teams that got invites because like normally that's their bread and butter. Like they'll be up the road like for mm-hmm. no reason, just for the sake of getting on TV or whatever. Which obviously there wasn't any. So why wouldn't you just roll around in the peloton? <laughs> yeah, and I think there was there was a weird amount of I don't know if these teams just really aren't used to racing in the bunch like that because it seemed like every day there was an announcement coming over the radio that one of the IBCT or AWOL O'Shea riders had crashed. And Mm so I think there is a level of just, you're suddenly thrown into a world tour peloton and there's a lot of nervousness and as much as you want to go, like they could hardly stay up in the bunch. Not, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it is a difficult situation to be in. I think it's compounded by the fact that maybe some of these riders are, I honestly haven't looked at the teams, the lists of these riders, but when you had two years of COVID, you know, it was the continental level riders that really missed out because they were only putting on the more world tour races for the bigger teams and with travel restrictions and everything, at least this is what we've seen with the Australian Um, I can use that as an example, contingent because they weren't able to come over to Europe, particularly for our juniors. So they've had zero exposure to racing in big bunches. It could be that. But they're doing all right. They're in Turing and Rock Salt. 
No. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. But um, that might be a causal factor of lots of crashes. But when I raced um, the women's tour uh, a couple of times, yeah, I think it is just a different um, a different peloton to what they're used to in the UK. And actually, Amy, you've raced in the UK, so I guess you could speak to this. Um, raced is a loose term. You were a bike racer. I was there. Yeah, I was present <laughs> for those things. And I didn't last very long, not long enough to make a judgment on what the peloton is like compared to anywhere else. That's the fact. Apart from everyone's a little gobbier. That's my one assessment. Um, oh, what? They're a lot gobbier, like mouthier, like milk. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also what that kind of shows is like, because that's a massive jump from like domestic UK racing world tour. to a world tour peloton. Yeah. And I know that yeah. some of these teams do go over to like Belgium and Holland and stuff, but mm. I just think like that's another, it goes back to the same conversation we always have about development and like, mm. yeah, I mean, not every race has to be world tour, but we can get onto that later, I guess. Yeah, I think really the only the takeaway point was I think this was at this point Weber's fifth win of the season in a sprint finish. Her forty third career win at the age of twenty three. Well, there you go. And I, I guess it was just Bruja de Pana that was the only race that she ran second in a sprint finish. I think everywhere else she led out Charlotte Cool in a smaller one point one in Belgium, I believe. But it, she's just, I guess we can talk about it after the third stage, but for me, she, we, we've said it on the podcast this whole year, she's the standout sprinter of the peloton. But also shout out Charlotte Cool as well, because again, this is the thing with coverage, right? So we, we saw her do the lead out yesterday mm-hmm. on Sunday, but I mean, Tilda, you were there, so you would have seen, you said maybe on the first stage, it wasn't, she didn't get to mm-hmm. get much of a lead out, but that's the sort of stuff you miss and you don't see is it's like, okay, Lorena Weber's won, but like, how did she win? What teammates mm-hmm. helped her? Like, which team? What were the other teams doing? She yeah. might have won, but maybe there were other teams with better lead outs. So mm-hmm. I guess that's a talking mm-hmm. point for this. This was just a sprinter's tour. This was a chance which for is teams. Fine. Yeah, yeah. But there's other ways of, well, yeah. Anyway, stage two. <laughs> Stage two, um, yeah, stage two started in Chelmsford. Very weird start. It started on a university campus, so there were not many people there. Um, not as weird as a shopping centre. No, not quite as weird. 2020 Maybe one year they should start in like Westfield or something. That would be fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, stage two. So the start of stage two was practically the opposite to the start of stage one in that an attack from Veronica Ewers, I think she went, she did say to someone what time she went, but it was like less than six or seven kilometers in she attacked and her lead, she worked quite hard to get a lead quite quickly, but actually a crash behind then really slowed the peloton and her lead was suddenly over three and a half minutes. Um, From speaking to a couple of riders after the stage, they said there were attacks to um, go after you as to try and join her. But I think once the crash had happened and once the gap was so big that it was just these were not sticking and again the sprinter teams were quite happy to just have one rider that they knew they could catch um I went and looked at the highlights of stage two this morning just to see if we saw 
much of the stage. But again, similarly with stage one, they showed the start and then they just cut to the finishing circuit. And it's like, okay, but these are what people, this is what people actually saw because people were at the circuits. I saw them come through the finish line. I would have liked to see what they were doing out on the road, but that is not what we got. But that's the thing too, because like even on like Twitter and stuff, you you could see there were lots of videos of like the start and the finish. It's yeah. like the other part that's like missing. And also why? Yeah. Can we can we stop petition to stop showing reams and reams of footage of sign on? We why? Yeah. No one cares. Yeah. It is so boring. And also from a fan point of view, they they did a lot of so the, the the highlights both days were like less than half an hour in total, the package. And at least five minutes of that at the start was like pre-race interviews. And for the casual fan, that might be interesting, but I'm sitting there knowing what's happened. I don't want to know what at least last time I thought of it before the race even happened, yes. saying, oh, we're going to try today. So of course you're going to try race. today. You didn't win and- Do the post-race interview instead of what didn't yeah. go right. Or yeah. ask her the question, how do you think we can beat Weebers? <laughs> They do that on the YouTube of the Women's World Tour as well. Like mm-hmm. you'll watch like it's like a five minutes highlight video and like three minutes of that is like somebody talking before the race about and it's like, no, we don't need to see it. Yeah. So anyway, they were on so then not to the circuit. Uh Ubers took the first couple of sprints with Lorena Vivas um taking the sprint from the bunch behind. Uh, and then at some point on the circuit, I want to say about 30 kilometers to go, they caught you as, again, this happened out on the course and we didn't really get an update of when that had happened, but they caught her. And then there were a couple of queen of the mountains points, which Anna Henderson went and swept up again, um, which meant she had secured the overall win because there were no queen of, queen of the mountains on stage three. Quite funny as well, because she's not really a climber, is she? She's just like, and no, but honestly, climbs. The things that they had to shoehorn in as climbs, you know, some of them it's <laughs> motorway it's bridges, five hundred meters, it's and it's like zero point three percent gradient. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I understand this. there aren't any big climbs in Essex, but yeah, you know, then you start thinking about you could do something more interesting or have. This is another thing on the on the point of riders not going in breakaways because there's no points to chase. Even even the intermediate sprint points because that category was also decided in the finale it was obviously just going to go to a top three sprinter. Whereas I know what the Tour of Britain have done in a few years have had have had a, a points jersey that you can only get points in in the middle of the stage. And so there is a reason to go in the breakaway. But again, they were all in the finishing circuit and they were swept out by the sprinters and Lorena Rebus won by about 20 points. But yeah, and then again, it was a little bit of a hard finish, but I think everyone really overstated how hard it would be compared to world tour riders. And it seemed to be no problem for them. Vibus was in the wheels until about 200 meters to go. And then she just went and left everyone behind. No one could really come close. And she won again. And second on that stage was Bastianelli. So quite a good ride from her. And then third again was Emma Norsgaard, who I think was has been a little bit disappointed with her results over the weekend. But maybe one thing to talk about is the idea of which riders are really pure sprinters and which riders mm-hmm. are much more kind of, they like a tougher, more classic day. And I think riders like Bastianelli, Norsgaard and Kopecky are all that sort of rider. But mm-hmm. Vibus has really locked down the pure sprinter 
idea. She's the only one. Hey? She's like pretty much the only pure sprinter in the peloton. Yeah. Which is why she's winning these flat sprints by bike lengths. Exactly. I think um, maybe if Charlotte Cool was on a different team um, or if she'd stayed on, on the team she's on now, we would have seen more head-to-heads with them because perhaps she would have had the potential because she had some really good wins last year, like improper sprint finishes. I don't know. Right now, like this is something Amy has brought up before, that Weebers is the only what we will call a pure sprinter because at this point in time, she is still yet to show herself. I mean, she did get third in Het News Blood this year, I believe, but um, which is a pretty solid result considering that is like what we will call a mini Flanders um, in some respects. Uh, she really is. And back in the day, I would have said there were more pure sprinters. Like uh, back when I was racing, Barbara Garishi was a pure sprinter. Um, Chloe Hosking was one of the standout sprinters. Uh, Georgia Bronzini, uh, although Bronzini could climb actually when she wanted to climb. I guess with that, it's like, were they, it's just, it's good. It's the same kind of conversation around development and depth because maybe like, look, I don't know. And I'm not like going to shit on their sprints, but like maybe back in the day, like they were maybe more of like a Norsegaard style sprinter, but because of the depth of the peloton, they were just like sprinting away from everyone. Like, I don't know. I'm sure they were very fast and I'm sure like they might have given Weebers a run for our money, but I don't know if like, it's just a case of like the development of everybody going more towards these like specialisms. Specialisms? Is that the right word? Whatever. So like you've got these punchy classics riders who would have been able to like hold their own in a sprint but now you've got someone like Weebers on the scene who is like actually a pure sprinter which maybe Mm -hmm. hasn't really happened before um and she's got a lead out which is another rarity in women's cycling which actually back to the point about Charlotte Cool like yeah she probably could I don't know how old she is she's pretty young right Uh um yeah 23 I think oh so she's the same age as Weebers okay but I was going to say, oh, no, I mean, she must be a bit younger than that. Well, like, know. as in for her, yeah, no, she was 23. I mean, sprinters need lead outs or at least maybe they don't right now in women's cycling, but she will eventually like that is probably where it's headed. And someone like Charlotte Cole could probably cut her teeth leading out weavers and then jump over to be like her, her own sprint, like her, on her yeah. own in the team. Mm. But there's there's just going to be more and more. I mean, we saw in um, Turingen, Alex Manley just wiping the floor with people in a similar way. She's come from the track. So I don't know what I'm saying here other than <laughs> Lorena Weavers is the fastest rider and everyone else is not. They're not really sprinter sprinters. They're just like punchy. Um, as well, you know, talking about lead out and things like that, there were a lot of teams there that maybe misstepped in what rider they backed and the lead out they executed. Because if you look at Valkar, they had two riders in the top 10 on two stages. And it's like, maybe you should just lead one of them out instead of have them both go. And again, you look at SC Works and their start list. At first, it looked like Lonica Unikin was going to be their sprinter. who was a good sprinter. like, And I would say is kind of a Charlotte Cool type rider who probably ideally wants to 
improve her classics um, ability, but also has a really fast finish. But then because they sent Kopecky, Kopecky was their sprinter. And okay, she won really well at Vuelta Burgos, but she's not she, a sprinter. She's not, not a sprinter. Anymore. She's not even on the level of Emma Norsgaard, I wouldn't say. No. I mean, I know she did beat Emma Norsgaard, so that's a silly thing to say. <laughs> but, you know, Kopecky has rarely been a very pure sprinter and her climbing is like way too good for that. And so I think, yeah, a couple of these teams need to think about how they're going to beat Vibus or come close and sending a classics rider is not what's going to do that. You need someone with the really, the really pure fast finish and, and a committed lead out. And I think if Kopecky was leading out Unicorn or Persico had been leading out Consoni, they might've had slightly better results. Yeah, Valcor, that was bad. They were sprinting each other and they arguably had like the next fastest rider in Consoni. Mm. So it's like, what are you up to? Really? Like even on, I mean, we can get on stage three, but even on stage three, I was like, what are you doing? Like they were, they were chasing so much stuff down. Like they were spending so much time in the wind and it's like, you guys don't need to do that. Like force one of the world tour teams to do that. Which is odd considering we've been, we've spoken about Valkar so much this season that they've been like pretty amazing with their lead outs. I mean, not just this season, but in general, they're usually quite organized and it is uh, evident who they're sprinting for because they wouldn't have gotten the results they got this year if that wasn't the case. So I don't know what happened there. I think at the lower level, maybe when they've got more, when they're bigger fish, Mm. it's perhaps a bit better, easier for them to do that. but. Yeah, I don't know, maybe they just panicked or maybe it was the classic case of like trying to have two, two leaders, which we've seen. Which doesn't work, does particularly work, no. when it is like blatantly obvious it's going to be three sprint finishes. You can change up your sprinter, give someone a chance on stage one and then stage two. And that's what I'm surprised with with SD Works. We, we've spoken about the fact that we we don't feel like they have someone who when they line up for these races is their, their pure sprinter. I mean, they can pull off podiums or top fours or fives, but it's not like they go in there with someone that you're going to necessarily pick as a top three for the day. And, you know, Kopecky ran fourth, fourth, and then she finally got a third, but you, you kind of ask yourself, why didn't they mix it up, try something different? Maybe with Kopecky, like when I think back when she burst onto the scene, she was pigeonholed more of this sort of sprinter type rider because she was a trackie and she was super fast. And if you go back and look at her results, all her results were in these sort of bunch sort of finishes, but she's developed as a rider. You know, she, she's growing, um, she's like not aging, she's getting older. And as we find with a lot of these women is as they get stronger and she's gotten better on the track as well, she, her ability to climb in the past two, three years is just, increased tenfold from say five years ago but again like I don't think she's ever been a pure sprinter I would never No, but again what the peloton was six years ago yeah. you would have said she was a sprinter it's different now like you've said and I think Gracie brought up this point that as the the women's peloton um, becomes more professionalized and riders have the ability to specialize instead of being all-rounders because what we saw previously is just that there were riders who could do a bit of everything, right? We're seeing the emergence of true, real domestiques now, riders that don't actually have to get results to warrant getting signed again. Riders that, yeah, 
can be pure sprinters. So maybe that's the direction that we're going in is it, as there's more stage races and there are more, there's more predictability a little bit in the women's racing and teams know that there are going to be sprint finishes. Like with this tour, you had to take a sprinter. If you didn't have a sprinter, you just weren't going to get results this, this past weekend. So um, as it becomes more specialised, yeah, maybe that's that's what we're going to see is, is riders can actually go, I'm going to just focus on being on like a Caleb Ewan, for example. I think it's a weird one, isn't it? Because why don't more riders do that? And I think part of it is we look at a weekend like this and we say, okay, it's three sprints, so be a sprinter. But then actually in the rest of the season, there's not loads and loads of pure sprints. And actually you might be better placed if you can be a bit more of an all-rounder. I mean, I, I'm i hesitant to like complain about riders being better at climbing. Like, I know they lose some of their sprint legs, but then you look at someone like Norsegaard who can get around a classic and was leading out um, Patino at Vuelta Berg to the start of the climb. And that is probably a good thing for the level of cycling in general and when there are not that many really really pure sprint days and we don't even get to see them on tv it's like why would you do that when you could go for more glory by being um a slightly more mixed rider and win something like flanders which lorena vibus might win that in the future but she's not she's not a kopecky who is already winning that now so i can see where riders choose to not specialize in being a pure sprinter even if even if they sat down and put in the effort they could be really really good at it I think there is a lot of attraction to being a more all-round rider when we look at the season as a whole yeah which I think might change in the future if we have more kind of you know like with the tour and stuff and just Mm. the way things are just headed in general because we can't yeah we can't say it's heading in the the direction the way that men's is as in there is going to be like more specialized riders who are sprinters or climbers or whatever okay I can I can't see I might be wrong I can't see Weavers ever turning into like a Kapeki style rider like she's all I've she's she's the closest like she's the I don't know why I keep hopping on this point she is a pure sprinter like you can just like see it like she's putting bike leads into like the likes of Kopecky, but she's also never going to climb like her. Mm-hmm. Like, so I think there's a, there's this thing of like looking at the calendar and saying like, oh, there's no point being a sprinter because it's not nothing here like really suits me. But if you're naturally predisposed to that and you want to like tap into your like natural talent, then you kind of don't have a choice if you're someone like her. So, but I mean, we probably would have said that about, I don't know, like Corinne Rivera a few years ago. Sorry, Corinne Lebecki. Um, you know, like she was, yeah, super fast and looked for all the world like a pure sprinter. And now and she's now kind of, she's evolved. Yeah. 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 It's just a, a question of how the sport continues to evolve. I mean, if, if we just look at Weber's results, that's a pretty good indication of um, what top level sprints have happened this year. And so that was her seventh win this year. And we're, just about to go into June. You know, everyone bashes on about like Mark Cavendish and the record of the tour wins and all that. I can't wait for like 10 years time when we're like, oh, you know, this is going to break this record, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Or someone's going to break the record in the Tour de France. 
Yeah, and on that, I'm going to put this out early. She's going to have the first yellow jersey in the Tour de France, isn't she? Oh, yeah, she's winning. Yeah, absolutely. That will be good. No one's coming around her. Um, I was just talking with one of the Aussie riders that's been, I I don't want to go on a tangent, but we always do anyway. Um, (laughs) A lot of these stages are a lot harder than they look on paper. So I'm really looking forward to getting into the Tour de France discussion in probably what, a month and a half or something. Mm. All right. And I guess stage three, getting back on track, was much of the same, um, except Kopecky managed to get on the podium with a third and um, Charlotte Cool did a fantastic final lead out for Weebers and Weebers again swept the floor. Tilda, you were there on the ground. It was an 85-kilometre circuit race. We were having a little discussion offline before we started recording about what the minimum length was for a UCI World Tour race, and we think it's about 80. And then I guess that kind of leads to the discussion in a three-day tour that was so short to just have an 85-kilometre race on the last day. What are your thoughts on that? I have no qualms with a circuit race being shorter i would not have watched 140 odd k of going around in circles in london no three hours of that would have been too much yeah but what i mean is like the just the distance in general i mean yeah okay i thought yeah it was a nice picturesque stage it was great to see people out there watching it it was live on television great for the sponsors but from a racing perspective yeah, and I think if they had if they had led into it, like if they had done, I don't know, forty k outside of the city and then come in and done the circuit, you get the same type of race, but everyone's a little bit more tired, and also everyone is a bit more like calm by the time the race starts because it was a pretty hectic start, and it's kind of a shame because you see riders like Guazzini abandon, and we'll get into into that in a minute, but that did kind of light up the race in some ways, but it just you know. Once you're dropped on a stage like that, you can't get round. And the neutral zone was hardly any distance at all. And it was just kind of panic from the go. Um, and I think that meant for a really exciting start, but then a really boring middle. And then a finish that everyone expected. Um, the men's one used to go around and, um, sorry. Fox Hill? Yeah. yeah. Didn't they, yeah. Didn't they do, do like yeah. the, almost like the Olympics course in a way? Wasn't it similar? I think so, yeah. It was yeah. similar, yeah. And that was quite a, a solid course because I guess something we didn't talk about, which we can discuss about the preview for the women's tour, is how dead those roads are around just <laughs> in the UK in general. They are. They're dead roads. They just, okay. like, sap the life out of your legs. Heavy. Um, heavy, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, um. One talking point for me, and I know you spoke with her, Tilda, like I've been talking up Ali Wollaston. I hope I said her last name right. Um, And I was really excited to see what she could do here. I think she's a rider that we won't say is a pure sprinter by any means. She seems super strong, comes from the track. I'm really excited to see what she, she does for the rest of the season. She's in a great team for her development under the guidance of Yolinda Hora. Um, And that was a brave move at the end there on the the final stage, but it was doomed to fail. Uh, There was lack of cooperation as well with Christabel Dover-Hickey, which probably wasn't the right rider you would want on a circuit race um, going into a late attack with. But um, she didn't really have that much luck with having a crack at the sprints this past three days. 
No, she didn't. I think stage one, um, she was very keen for that one, but she had a crash and then a mechanical in like the last two kilometers. So she was really out of that. Um, she did okay on stage two. I think she was ninth or eighth. The, yeah, the original result was eighth and then I saw ninth. So I don't really know about what that was, um, which I think in that field and in her first World Tour race is a pretty good result. Um, but I actually think it was very interesting what they did on stage three because in theory, you would have thought, keep it together to go for Wollaston or one of the other riders who's a good sprinter. But back to this young riders thing, that suddenly lit up the race because Borgstrom then was going to win that. And when I spoke to Ali at the finish, she said that that was what the point of that was, was to set it up for um, Julia Borgstrom, which I think shows quite a good tactical nous from next year to kind of make that decision in the race because obviously Guazzini abandoned um, in the first couple of laps and to work out that now Borgstrom is um, in contention and Borgstrom was obviously in the move so she um, grabbed a couple of bonus seconds and then to think okay let's forget the idea of um, going for Ali in a sprint and target this more um, overall result and so yeah the the move was a little bit doomed but also it then you know, we've been going on about Ali Wollaston for a couple of weeks, but now everyone's seen her on TV and has um, her name in their mind. And also it worked out and Borgstrom won um, that classification. So, yeah, a bit of a strange move at first. And I thought, oh, like, why isn't Ali just going for the sprint? But when she explained it at the finish, I thought, no, actually, that probably um, was a lot of a better decision than anyone on the outside would have um, assumed during the race. On the subject of whether she's a sprinter as well, she when I interviewed her a few weeks ago, she was saying that she still doesn't know really what kind, like she's still developing and she's pretty young. And I think that's quite normal, especially in women's cycling, to just kind of test the waters a bit. She's a, she seems like a bit of an all-rounder, like we saw in Britain, like she can time trial, she can, I don't know, she can climb, I didn't see that part. But like, yeah, she's she's obviously fast, Again, like she's probably going to turn into like a classic, like a Kopecky so rider. How exciting is the crossover from the track? If if you really think about it, like all these riders, we can get into it now. Alex Manley just sweeping the floor at Turrigan. Um, Bike exchange was obviously on another level there, but Alex was just a brilliant form. She won four out of the six stages and bike exchange won five out of the six. Um and these track riders that have come to the road now, you know, the Olympics was last year. It's two years till the next cycle. Um, so we've got like Balsamo, the world champion, who's a fantastic track rider. We've got Kopecky. We've got Wollaston. We've got Manly and Baker. And, um, you know, actually the Australian endurance team is currently in Belgium and they're going to be lining up for a few races. So look out for some results there. But uh, I really love that crossover. Um and it's been great as well to see some of the cross riders there. I saw in, in Turrigan, you could actually watch all those stages live, which was really cool. Um, so really great coverage for those teams. And I think quite a few people actually tuned in to, to watch because you couldn't watch the first two stages of, of Ride London. So Plantura, Plantura Pura uh, had a few of their cross riders there again. Uh, it was good to see. Celine Alvarado there mixing it up a bit, um, but the talk away the the talking point was just Alex Manley. 
It's a shame actually that there maybe wasn't a few more World Tour teams there because missed opportunity for points, I think. <laughs> well, like, or or what were the reason that they were all at Rag London that you know, like obviously there's more points and offer for World Tour races. So I think whether they would have preferred to actually go to Turingen was irrelevant because they had to turn up to the World Tour race for the points and that. But yeah, Turingen's always been a great race. I was always kind of been really well organized and it's long run less long-standing race and they always have coverage so stages are great mm. and it's really it's a tough race too like and it's six days long and I think that kind of you know does justice to the peloton in the ability. well I mean like Lacole Wahoo managed to field two teams so they were yeah. at both races and for mm. a, a team that's not well toured to do that that's yeah pretty spectacular like the world tour teams can't even do that <laughs> Well, I mean, I think some, yeah, exactly. I think some of the teams are actually regretting not sending a team to Turrigan. Um, But again, a lot of teams are stretched at the moment. There's been a lot of illness and injury. And we've seen multiple occasions where some of the teams only fielding four riders or the absolute minimum or having like riders just basically roll off the start line just so they can start the race. Considering we actually could watch it, what did we think of how it played out tactically in terms of obviously it was going to come down to a sprint and Lorena Weebus was the one to beat? And how? what do you think about the way that the other teams kind of played that? I mean, SD Works, I don't know what that was about. Um, well, I do know what that was about. Well, Lotta said at the finish, they said, oh, she said, um, you know, they just thought they'd try it and try and make it hard because DSM... Even if they left DSM to control it, DSM, there was no interest for them to try and make it hard and they would just ride around. Um, and I think SD Works thought, let's try and hammer this for a bit, just make it harder for everyone. And said, yeah, we did that for one lap and we realised we were going nowhere. And it was really hard for those three or four on the front. But as soon as you got to fifth or sixth wheel, it was still just easy. Um, and so they, they just gave up on that. Um, and... I think, yeah, it's kind of a hard one because obviously we did see a couple of breakaways, but it's really hard to get away and stay away on a circuit like that. Even to stay away for a minute for half the stage and then be caught, even that is hard when they're going really fast in the peloton behind. And I think in some ways I'm glad that other teams had to go because if if DSM had just sat on the front all day and gone round, like they would have just been going around in circles with nothing happening. But then... At the same time, they then just got a really easy day because they just sat in the wheels of teams like um, SD Works and even FDJ were trying to go off the front and stuff. Um, but then I don't know what anyone could have done. For me, it was like, why was anybody else ever chasing people down? Why was everybody not just sitting on DSM to chase down all the various attacks that were going off? Like, it was in their interest to keep it together. Like... Anyone, any other team that was like, oh, we need to chase this down for a sprint, for a sprinter, it was delusional. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> no, but like, what was like Valkar? Like, stop. <laughs> you don't, you can't afford to do this. Uh, like, yeah. Valkar is the strangest one because at least you can see the battle that was going on between uh, Next G and FDJ because they had Jade Wheel and uh, Borgstrom and also Boylard from Saint Michel. Like, they were just chasing each other down for this young riders category and it's like I do understand that that's important you want to go for it but like you're just helping out these teams and then you're going to be swept up in the minor places and 
yeah, Valkar, it's like, you should just sit on the wheel. You're not even a World Tour team. You really, really don't need to be doing this. No one's expecting you to do it. Um, so it would have been interesting to see what DSM thought of that because they had to do basically nothing all day. Yeah, they must have just been rubbing their hands together. Just yeah. like, this is perfect. Like, yeah. we don't even have to do anything. This is great. We've, we can save all our matches to lead Lorena out. Like, FTJ seemed to have just been, as soon as Guazzini was gone, they were just kind of firing off attacks, I think, just for lols. Like, to be honest, I think some people were treating that race as a bit of a training ride. Yeah. A training race, like, just kind of a tune-up. Do you think the mentality going into it was like, well, this is pretty much sewn up? Because looking at the stage ahead too, you know, sometimes there's an element of negativity. But that's what I mean, though, is that, like, if that was the mentality, then why wasn't everybody just kind of going, all right, then, off you, you chase that down then. Like yeah, if, yeah. if like, say if, if someone from FDJ goes off the front, it's the only team that stand to lose. If that makes it to the line is, is DSM. DSM. Mm. Correct. So <laughs> okay. they, I didn't see them touch the wind until the, no. until the lead out. But then I guess <laughs> no, the it was a perfect day for them. Yeah. If that had just happened and no one else would be doing anything, would we be sitting here saying, oh, that was so boring? Like someone should have tried something. Yeah. Probably, failed, but that's you should not try the, something. That's not racing. Like it would have been boring, but that's that's racing, isn't it? Sometimes tactically, yeah. like that would have been the right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a It's an interesting one. And also it's <laughs> the only stage we got to see on TV, again, not very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating we've managed to speak about this race for so long actually because before we got on the podcast I'm like oh my god we're gonna talk for 10 minutes and then like it's done <laughs> Weber's hat trick done won the race <laughs> um but yeah it just goes to show that um I don't this race in general is just disappointing on a few levels for yeah, me that- and I was more interested in Turrigan yeah, yeah. Tilda take the floor <laughs> on this one <laughs> what I was gonna say about I was gonna say this earlier um about Turingen is that there are some world tour teams who really just should have gone to Turingen and done something more interesting than they did here. And I think for me, the biggest disappointment of the race was probably Uno X who skipped basically the entire Spanish um, calendar for, to presumably prepare for races like this and the women's tour and the Giro. And they come to this with a rider like Susanna Anderson, who's a sprinter and a rider like Hannah Barnes, who can lead out a sprint, and they did absolutely nothing. Like, I don't think they even managed a top 10. They've only had one World Tour top 10 this season, and they've only had one podium. And I think it is time to start looking at these World Tour teams and saying, what are you really doing? And I know they're in their first year, but this was the kind of race where they should have... Um, done a lot better especially since skipping all of the other stage races so far in May and I think um yeah we do need to kind of question these teams when there are there are world tour teams that are less good than others but they're at least trying something but you X we've hardly we've not seen them race all month and then they turn up here and they just don't do anything and yeah they've been pretty invisible so far mm, this season I don't know how well that bodes for the rest of the season Maybe they're just preparing for bigger goals, but I think... Yeah, but with that said, you think you would have seen something by now. It is June. Yeah. And you know? especially looking at teams, at the start of the year, looking at the new World Tour teams, Uno X were not the one that I would say would be invisible going into June. And teams that sh- should be a lot 
worse in terms of they have less support, less good riders and probably less money have done a lot better. Like even Human Powered Health and Roland Cajas have had results and you've seen them there. But Unorex have just, I think they, they seemed really exciting at the start of the year and they're really yet to deliver on that. Also, EF have really stepped up. Like we ragged on them quite a bit early on, but they've really stepped up lately, like with Veronica Ewers and the likes. So, and just getting more involved in the races, they're way more yeah, visible. more active. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, obviously gelling. Really, it's a good job there isn't a the promotion relegation thing going on for the women. Mm, mm. Well, for it's a good job for teams like Unix anyway. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but on the ground at. <laughs> Ride London. Come on, Tilda. <laughs> Let's have it. Uh, what to say? What to say? Um, I don't want to be too like specifically horrible. And I will preface this by saying all the teams said that from their point of view, it was really well organized. They were happy with the hotels, happy with the way things were run. At the finish and the start, things went smoothly. There were no great disasters in that sense. And so that is also a really important part of running a race and that some races don't go right is the treatment of the riders and the teams. But in terms of the covering it side for the media, they just made it as hard as it could have possibly been. Um, there were three of us that covered the race. I was the only one that was there for all three stages and two other journalists um, both did two stages. Two of us never received our accreditation prior to the race. And the third was initially denied his accreditation because it was too oversubscribed, despite the fact there were three of us. Yeah. Which three, three journalists for the whole race. Exactly. Which for can just, race. that just cannot be true, basically. Not to accuse anyone of anything. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was just difficult. And I think because there was such a small number, we were just forgotten about. And it was very much and they were really focused on doing their own interviews and social media and all of this, which is fine. But then just ring fencing out the media that are there is not really very helpful. And then yesterday, like, I think the, the, the height of it was turning off the TV in the press room, which we were both sat there trying to write a race report. It was the only stage we could actually watch. And they said, oh, we turned it off. And they said, oh, we didn't realize you were actually watching it. And I just what? thought, what do you think? What do you think we're doing here? What do you think we're doing? They just thought you could have to use it as like a we work, just like exactly, exactly. I'm not just doing random stuff. And then, and yeah, and I think everyone agreed that everyone who was trying to follow stages one and two, which, as we said, was a lot of us, because even if it's not a very exciting race, most of the publications do race reports for every world to race, so we mm -hmm. don't have a choice as to whether we pay attention to that. And the live coverage provided was quite in terms of. Um, text coverage and updates in that respect was very disappointing and again I have to be careful what I say but having done a little bit of snooping it was not a case of a lack of information they had so much more information than they were putting out and I think they just had a severe lack of understanding of what people wanted from that race and we as journalists wanted to cover it and we wanted the information and we wanted to speak to riders and they didn't seem to realize any of that at all and I think it's a real shame because if you don't have live tv coverage surely you'd want to prioritize the rest of the coverage but no so not really is it the people who run the like sportive the grand fondo thing it's the same organizers 
Yeah, who and they so, the company is called London Marathon Events. So their uh, main okay. event is the London Marathon. So so it's not like they're tiny inexperienced organizers either. But yeah. I think I think even though they've been running these two races for, for 10 years, their experience in running a pro level bike race, especially over multiple days, is just not there. And they need some sort of and I think this shows when you look at races like Lotto Thuring and then loads of small races like think about Elsie Jacobs and stuff like that. When you have small organizers and even Binder, like small organizers who are really cycling passionate, that's how you get it right. Being a big organizer with loads of money and loads of resource kind of means nothing if you don't have. Wait, but they don't have money, Tilda, because that's why they couldn't <laughs> give live coverage. So, yeah, um, which is a whole conversation, isn't it? And I think it was a little bit. Um, bold of them to sit there and say well it's been the pandemic and all of this when it's been the pandemic for every race this season and they've put live coverage on so what's what makes you different but this is the thing with like with race design amy abby and i actually spoke about this with the duo <laughs> the design when was it amy was it two years ago or last year no it was last, last year. year and they had the stupid like uh, back um, what's the word like um, they've had like all the hardest, the hardest and the hardest stages and it, and they had an uphill time trial that Anna van der Breggen just like walked Decimated. everybody on yeah uh, yeah but this is why you need a race director going back to passion and someone who is experienced with women cycling to to actually design a race in general though the thing is is that the race directors Scott Sunderland is in theory a really experienced race director retired Australian professional works with the race director yeah works with Cadell Cadell Road Race Flanders Classics but yeah you wouldn't have thought that necessarily and I don't I don't know how much he had to do with designing the race but yeah and it's like you say Abby Amy, sorry, I'm reading your name off the screen. It's like you say, Amy. It's all right. You only talk to me every day. <laughs> whatever, whatever. Um, but yeah, you have to design a course. But um, I think the problem with this race is that there was there was no there was nothing to make it worthwhile for teams that want sprinters because they backloaded all the points, mm-hmm. um, which I just think really let the race down. And, and again, it just shows a, a lack of understanding about cycling. And understanding, but also. Reading between the lines, for me, it's kind of like they thought, here's a box ticking exercise. We can say, ooh, equality. We put on a women's race. Look at us. Aren't we great? We, but without, we're going to do the bare minimum. I don't think anyone's really going to be that asked about it. So we can get away with like, you know, not covering the first two stages and not really paying that much attention to the course design and how that might actually play out in the race. And we don't care if there's only three people from the media and we're not going to manage that properly. And it like, what else, what other reason is there? Give me another reason apart from a complete lack of interest or like. I think my interpretation of it is that they underestimate how, much interest there is in in women's cycling as a professional elite sport and we see it with the women's tour a little bit and I don't want to be too horrible about the women's tour because they do good things 
things but people talk about making it a great community event and gets people involved in cycling and schools come out and watch it and it's like that's all well and good but it's an elite sporting event that's what it is and we cover it as journalists and so having all these things and attaching it to the sportive and having fans on the road and great sponsor activation should be secondary to it being a sporting event especially the at the world tour level the sportive was killing me it's it's just I was like what is this like but if you want just it to be understand. this like twee little like oh let's get everyone out don't be a world tour race exactly and then you can have a great three-day event for uk riders and uk teams who have had their development paths absolutely decimated in the last few years you can have suddenly a three-day race for them which they would really appreciate and in terms of the sponsor activation and getting people involved and raising, you know, raising awareness of the sportive, which is their main interest, I think, have the same result. But you don't shoehorn World Tour riders and teams into coming because they have to for the points and they can go and race a better race at Turing and, and everyone's happy. But I think, I think, I think people, organisers see the World Tour as this kind of badge of honour, but actually it is the top level of the sport and you need to treat it like the top level of the sport. But this exactly. is, I think, who, I don't know who's, who's responsibility, but at the minute, like on the women's side, like world tour status as a race, as a team is being used as just clout. And the UCI or whoever need to take away the clout so that this doesn't keep happening because it's just, nobody is benefiting from it. Teams are getting shafted for it. Like, the riders are getting shafted because races are like, they, they want the world tour status for the clout so they can say, we're a world tour race without actually having to adhere to the like parameters of being a world tour race. So what is the point? And I mean, from the world tour perspective as well, they would have thought, okay, a three-day race in the UK, then we have a few days of training, go across and race the women's tour, but actually I don't think it was necessarily three really hard days of racing. And now the teams will hang around, I'm assuming, until June 6th. So I don't know if if that's a good transition actually into the women's tour, but I did have a look at this. (laughs) I think think this this comes as a reason why um, people like Ezra Trump were quite unhappy about it because um, they've come all the way to the UK, which is not an easy thing in the times of brexit and the delays at the border and all of this it is harder to come over to the uk and if you're going to come and make that effort it has to be a good race and you don't want to come for just a little three-day jaunt around the uk it was like a jolly um it has to be more worth it and i just don't think it was this weekend no well i mean on yeah I guess it is a good transition into the women's tour, why they will be staying on for the next week, I suppose. What are we today? We're only the 30th. It's a week away. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah. It's a whole week. I do wonder if they're going to, I guess it makes sense definitely for all the staff and the, um, yeah, for the staff, definitely. Maybe some of the riders will go home, particularly the Belgians um, and the Dutchies. It's not that far. But There's going to be live coverage supposedly on GCN. I don't know how much. I haven't looked into it yet, but it is definitely there on the app. Um, And from what I've seen, it looks like it's going to be a really hard tour. And usually this tour is very difficult. Like we were saying, the roads are really heavy in the UK. There are some really long stages of up to 140 kilometres. 
a lot of climbing. It looks like the Queen stage finishes up a um, Cat 1 climb perhaps, uh, so hilltop finish on stage five. Um, and a couple of days with about 2,000 metres of climbing. So it's going to be a really hard tour. We can fully preview it on next week's podcast. Yeah. It's on Monday. No, I think we, we covered pretty much everything. This was definitely, we always say it's going to be a short episode, but it ended up <laughs> still being quite long. Um, Abby was like, it doesn't tour. have to be an hour. And I was like, yeah, well, I mean. <laughs> well, we'll see how we go. But <laughs> the eighth edition of the Women's Tour will be starting on June the 6th. It's six, six stages, like I mentioned. It's going to be a really hard tour. Um, that's coming up. The longest one for the Women's World Tour for the year. Uh, it should be a really no. good one. No. So far? So far, okay. that's what I meant. What, okay. <laughs> For the year so far, until we hit um, July. Um, and that's it for the podcast this week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us again, Tilda, and for being the on-the-ground reporter. Um, we will be back next week, and uh, hopefully we'll have Abby joining us. Mm-hmm.